Welcome back to another Four Minutes of Threads. Our last episode ended with a policeman trudging through the filthy streets of Buxton, consulting his clipboard and banging on doors. He had a straggling, exhausted group of refugees from Sheffield with him, including Ruth. And he's going from door to door, making sure the homeowners open up and take them in. If the records show that you have spare rooms, then you have no choice. Open the door. We talked in the last Threads episode of how this forced billeting, it kind of undermines the advice of Protect and Survive, which was desperate to portray your home as your fortress, your castle, your only protection against the nuclear storm. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. (laughs) Stay in your own home, it commanded. And yet, it seems there's not much safety or security in it after all. Because the state can send the police round and demand you throw the door wide open and accept a bunch of strangers. Naturally, our cranky homeowner is not keen to accept this crowd and he has to be ordered to allow entry to Ruth and the other refugees. But their time in the house doesn't last long. In the next scene, he is throwing them all out into the streets. Get up, will you? The whole lot of you. Gone! Now you might wonder how the old man is able to throw a group of refugees out. Surely the group could overpower him. They outnumber him and certainly they seem younger, so why are they not tossing the old man out into the streets? Why are they just meekly accepting his bad temper and going back out into the cold and the fallout? Well, maybe the old man is fuelled by righteous indignation. As he said in the last scene, I'm having no strangers here. But maybe it's because he, as a resident of Buxton, has escaped the nuclear attack relatively unscathed. His house still stands. And if the house is intact, then that implies he still has a well-stocked larder and stockpiled water. Neither is he missing any limbs or skin or eyes. Whereas our group of refugees from Sheffield, well, wow, we know what they've been through. So maybe they are still mired in disaster syndrome, still stricken with shock and apathy and despair, and perhaps physically weakened by hunger thirst and injury. So when the angry wee bloke orders them out and physically hurls their stuff into the street, it seems they haven't got the guts or the spirits or the energy to challenge him. Although, when the scene opens and he is throwing all their stuff into the street, I think I can hear the sound of a gunshot. Now, obviously, guns are illegal in Britain, but Given that he is living on the edge of the moors, maybe he had a licence to have one for farming or hunting? If so, well, 
That explains how he is able to so easily get all the refugees out. He's armed. Get up, will you? The whole lot of you. Gone! We know that Ruth has been clutching a brown paper bag to her chest in the last few scenes. And here we see the old man has thrown it onto the pavement where its contents scatter. And we get a peek at the treasure that she's been hugging to her chest. Curtain hooks, an orange rubber glove, a spoon, a few coins, some green wool, some sugar cubes, and of course, Jimmy's book of foreign birds. It's a sad mixture of the practical and the useless. We know why she has Jimmy's book, of course, sentimental reasons. The orange rubber glove, well, it makes sense, given all the dirt and debris she's living amongst. The wool, well, that could be useful for tying things, holding things, repairing things. Maybe even for trapping and killing something. Sugar cubes make sense, as they were recommended as a stockpiled foodstuff in fallout shelters, as they provide a quick release of energy. And they melt on the tongue. And the melting on the tongue part is important. I've told you before of... British civil defence planners who were concerned about our delicate tongues and mouths after nuclear war. It had been recommended that if Britain had gone ahead with public fallout shelters, which of course it didn't, but if we had gone down that path, they should have been stocked with boiled sweets to give that same quick release of sugar and energy. But my archives show me that one planner raised a concern that the continual sucking of boiled sweets may aggravate the roof of the mouth. Sugar lumps, however, can simply dissolve on the tongue. So that's Ruth's practical stuff. But she also has the seemingly useless. Coins, for example. We know now that money has no value. And curtain hooks. I don't know how you could make use of them unless, well, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Maybe these Desperate times will reveal a use for these twisted wee bits of white plastic. Or maybe she has gathered them purely from a a newly acquired hoarding tendency. She has lost everything, therefore she will clutch and gather anything she can find to perhaps try and make up for having lost so much. As the scene ends, we get another hint that Perhaps our Sheffield refugees are indeed still in the grip of disaster syndrome. Because if the old man is indeed wielding a gun and firing, there are no screams and Hollywood, run for your life, let's get out of here. Instead, we hear from the refugees as he chases them away, just general grumblings and complaints. And one man says in a slightly whining voice, where are we supposed to go? Now, is this how they would react in ordinary times? In an ordinary psychological state? If some old guy was shooting at them? No. And so it suggests to me they are indeed stunned, shocked, blunted, apathetic. Classic disaster syndrome. And we have an episode in the archive about disaster syndrome. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, the title should be quite self-explanatory. There's 
the word panic is in there somewhere. Can't remember what I called it exactly. So our next scene shows us a feeding centre. We've talked before of how these would appear after the bomb, if the plans had worked, of course, and would probably be sited uh, most commonly in local schools or community centres, because not only are they familiar and recognisable public buildings, but they will have kitchens and communal areas. Well, that's if the plan worked out, of course. In this scene here, our survivors are outdoors. They are hunched and huddled in blankets and they're shivering in the cold. Nuclear winter has, of course, descended. And they are tearing at chunks of bread with their teeth and gripping old chipped mugs and bowls. Now, this is clearly not the dining area of a school or community centre or church hall. We can assume then that those buildings have been rendered unusable by blast or fire, or perhaps they are simply overwhelmed, and so others are forced to take their bread and their soup out into the street. Now, I'm assuming it's soup they've been given because we can see people dipping their bread into their mugs and it does contain a dark liquid, so perhaps it's a thin soup or stew. And we see the same dark liquid being ladled out into bowls. Now, when I interviewed Mick Jackson, uh, of course you can find the interview in the archive, he described filming this scene, and he had wondered, how do we, on a tiny budget of course, recreate a feeding centre, and the sense that hundreds and hundreds of refugees are constantly queuing and filing past for their helping of food? He said they set up the camera to show the fire burning, and in the hands of the anonymous person who's ladling out the soup, And we see people walk past slowly for their helping. But, of course, behind the camera, they were simply circling and walking back round again. So we're seeing the same small group of extras filing past. But, of course, it gives the impression that there's an endless uh, shuffling parade of starving refugees. We also see one of the refugees, uh, as he collects his soup, placing a, a grubby stub of paper on the table. So this must be some kind of rationing system to make sure people don't keep queuing up for extra helpings. There will be no post-nuclear Oliver Twist tactics here, please. You hand over your ticket and you get your allocation and you get no more. Indeed, as this scene plays out, we can hear a distant, crackling loudspeaker issuing instructions. As our refugees huddle and queue and shiver and eat, the loudspeaker is barking at them. It says, this is a final warning. And it goes on to tell residents and non-residents to register at the local town hall for ID cards and ration books. Now, it's hard to hear the rest of the announcements, but we don't really need to hear it all. Um, It's mainly there for intimidating atmosphere, isn't it? To tell us that, yes, the state is feeding you, but it will be accompanied by barked final warnings and orders, so don't get comfortable here, don't get lazy. And it's interesting that the announcement differentiates between residents and non-residents. So clearly, both groups are being ordered to go to the town hall to get their ID cards and their ration cards. So if they've both been given the same instruction, 
Why mark out the difference in their status? Residents and non-residents? Do residents get a slightly bigger ration because they have obeyed the advice of Protect and Survive and stayed at home? Are non-residents to be marked and identified and punished somehow? The scene moves on and other sounds and dialogue uh, drown out the loudspeaker voice, but it is still there, barking and commanding in the background. A reminder that the state and the authorities are still here, still in charge, at least for now. As people keep filing past the soup pots, dropping their tickets and getting their ladle full, we see Ruth in the background. She sits on the ground, huddled against a wall, absolutely intent on her food. And then Bob approaches her. Remember Bob, Jimmy's friend? The one who delivers the famous line, Jesus Christ, they've done it! Bob approaches her softly, uncertainly, and says, Ruth? It is Ruth, isn't it? Well, you might think Ruth would be overjoyed to see a friendly and familiar face, particularly someone who represents a connection with Jimmy. But no. She twists her body so that she is hunched away from Bob. Maybe this is some kind of animal reaction, like she's guarding her food against a potential predator. She twists away from him and just carries on eating. Poor Bob slides down the wall and sits next to her with his own bowl and he sadly and quietly mumbles on about Jimmy. I'm Bob. Jimmy's mate. We met once or twice, remember? Came to our last Christmas do at work. Where is he? Is he with you? Have you seen him? He says that he met Ruth at the work's Christmas do, remember? And where is Jimmy? Have you seen Jimmy? Ruth is so far beyond conversation and the approach of another person that she just ignores him and, like a hungry animal, wolfs at her food. We are now six weeks after the attack and the sky is thick with dark grey clouds and it's streaked with the, the filth and soot and smoke of the nuclear war. We are in the midst, of course, of nuclear winter. Ruth and Bob have trekked up to the moors above Sheffield, where they find a dead sheep lying on the hard, freezing ground. They are so desperate and starving that they wonder, can we eat it? Bob thinks that the woolly coat may have shielded it from fallout. But Ruth reminds him, sheep don't die of cold. So... Something must have killed it. But who cares? Bob gets out a knife and he slits its stomach open. And any worries of contamination vanish when they both see the red meat inside the animal. And in a horrible moment, Ruth almost gasps with pleasure. It almost seems indecent as they both drive their faces into the sheep's flesh. Here's a clip and listen for Ruth's awful little oh of pleasure at the end as she shoves her face into the sheep. 
Sheep don't die of cold. It must be radiation. You'd be able to taste it if it were contaminated. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, we've no choice, have we? Unless we want to starve to death. Later, after their initial furious hunger has abated, we see them both sitting apart, up on the dark moors, up on the stones, quite content, gnawing at red, wet, meaty bones from the sheep. If you've listened to my Sheffield special episodes and saw our photos on Patreon, you'll know that my husband and I went up onto the moors and I had David crouch down on the rocks and pretend to gnaw on a sheep up there. A toy sheep, of course. We bought a a wee fluffy one from Amazon. It now belongs to Bomba. It's now a dog toy. In this scene, as Ruth gnaws on a big hunk of red meat and bone, Mick Jackson told me that this was real meat. So forget clever props and special effects. Karen Meher, the actress, really was up on the moor, gnawing on blood and bones. <laughs> so good on her. At this point, um, Bob reveals he's going to take some of the meat with him. He might head for the city. Ruth just shrugs. There's nothing there, though, in the city. Maybe he'll go north then. Then he says, well, doesn't really matter, does it? It's all the same. And I wonder why he and Ruth don't stay united. Surely two heads are better than one. Or maybe for plot reasons, of course, Ruth had to be alone. But it might also be disaster syndrome. Why bother to plan and scheme and organise? What's the bloody point? The next scene tells us it's September, four months after the attack. We are obviously still in the depths of freezing, dark nuclear winter. A reminder for any new listeners that there is a special episode in the archive about nuclear winter, where I interviewed um, a professor, an atmospheric chemist, who was able to explain to us exactly what the theory of nuclear winter is, what would happen, and we ask him some questions about how it would relate to threads. It's a good episode, I think. So seek that out if you need a little um, refresher on what nuclear winter would be. So this next scene tells us we're in September, four months after the attack. Ruth is still up on the moors and is alone. Now, the moors, of course, are frequently windy and cold and perhaps inhospitable and dangerous, especially for a lone and heavily pregnant woman. But what's Ruth's alternative? To be down in the city in towns? Well, no thank you. Because that means, the cities in particular, mean lawlessness, rubble, debris, mounds of decaying dead, and of course the threat of other people. So I can see why Ruth is sticking to the emptiness of the moors. She has taken shelter in an old dilapidated barn and she's sleeping in a big heap on the floor. And for a second, she opens her eyes wide suddenly and sees in her imagination Jimmy as he bent down his aviary to feed his birds. Again, there's no reaction from Ruth. There's no Hollywood retching and sobbing for her lost love. Fred is just too good for that. Instead, she just lies there, her eyes wide as she 
sees this image of Jimmy. Other images appear as she lies there, a baby in a buggy, and then the infamous woman she saw in the rubble who was clutching a dead baby to her breast. Ruth still lies there, huddled up on the floor. Her eyes are staring wide, wide with despair. It's a wordless despair, as I say, no need for crying, no need for big impassioned speeches, not even a tear. She just lies there with her eyes staring as these images flit through her mind and as they appear briefly for us on screen. Her eyes are wide and then she simply closes them again. No point in emotions and crying, it just uses up scarce energy. No point, absolutely no point. She simply closes her eyes again and there are four minutes end. Now, let me apologise, please, for my absence. Uh, we haven't had a podcast for a couple of weeks. Um, I've been very busy with uh, the book. The book is out on 6th of April. If you're a new listener, that's my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. Um, I was down in London at a, a book event, and then I've been in the studio recording the audiobook. So I've been I've been busy, and I'm not good at multitasking. I'm not good at all. I need to learn that skill because I assume I'm going to be busy when the book comes out, or I hope I will. So I'm sorry for the the silence. I've been updating my patrons, of course, on Patreon, but, you know, that's not a replacement for a podcast. You're all here for the podcast, of course. So I'm back home now. Nothing in the diary currently. I will just be back here podcasting and working on a second book. So a reminder that my book is now available to pre-order, as is the audiobook, which I just finished recording on Friday, and it's of course now being tidied up and edited. But you can uh, pre-order it now, and I'd be very grateful if you would. You can get it on any of the major book websites, of course, Amazon, Waterstones, Blackwells, Foils, etc. And it's called Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, by me, Julie McDowell. And it's available to pre-order as hardback, Kindle or audiobook. And speaking of having been quiet recently, my patrons who support me and who support this podcast haven't had a bonus episode for a while, so I will be getting on to that tomorrow morning. So let me say hello to my new patrons who've joined recently. Andre Russell joined us last night. Thank you, Andre. I was playing Scrabble in bed when I got a ping on my mobile that said new patron. And thank you also to Rachel Hughes, who has joined recently. So if you are a patron, I regularly update the Patreon site with uh, blog posts and updates. So there's one there about my recent trip to London, going to a literary dinner to promote Attack Warning Red. And I'm going to do another one today, uh, just updating on how the recording of the audiobook went. I just want people to feel involved and up to date in how the book is proceeding, because of course my patrons have been with me all throughout this process, offering support. So it's quite right that I shared it with people. So if you want to join us on Patreon, we are at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can pre-order my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.